listening to The Currency Welcome. I am your long-lost host. I'm Mike Gaston, and I am thrilled to be back behind the mic. That's right. It's been months. It's been months since I've put an episode out of The Currency, but I'm really excited to finally get set up. And there's a reason that I have been silent for so long. Guys, welcome. This is episode number 90. I'm going to give a brief life update. And then I want to talk about a book I read recently and an insight or just a kind of a thought that I took from it. But I hope you're doing great on this lovely day. It is July 27th as I record this. That's a Tuesday evening. And uh, like I said, really glad to be behind the mic. So why have I been silent? I do have a habit throughout my life of getting excited about a project, starting that project, going great guns into that project, And then just kind of losing interest. I kind of, you know, I I think this is like an entrepreneur's dilemma. You love starting things. You love researching. You love taking the risk. You love learning and diving in. It's all new. And then once it's not new, it's like, this is just boring. And you're looking for another project. That is not the case with the currency. Now, there have been some undercurrents uh, that I'll talk about at some time, you know, just mainly trying to figure out some things around my business model, my value offering, and my life. Uh, but this is not a Dr. Phil moment. I'm not going to just, you know, lie down on the couch and tell you how I feel. That aside, I mean, that undercurrent aside, my reason for not putting the podcast out is my wife and I, we just underwent a massive life change, massive life change. We, we up and moved out of New York State. We are no longer residents of New York State. In fact, we are Almost a thousand miles away, I want to say. I'd have to look at the numbers. I think it's about a thousand miles, maybe 900 miles away. We are living in the Charleston, South Carolina region. Right now, we're in temporary digs. So we've been in this really state of upheaval. It's been just really hard. Uh, it's all planned, by the way. It, it's not like something bad happened. This is all good. But even being good, like having a baby is a wonderful thing. What a huge blessing when you have a child. I mean, not everyone has children or can have children, but when you have a child, it is just, it's just amazing to, to have this life come into your family, uh, to, to see them thrive and grow and just all the stuff that's, that's associated with having a child. Amazing. But on the other hand, it's upheaval and it's difficult. It's, it's hard. It can be very, you know, it can be just really discouraging at times and exhausting and frustrating. So here's what's going on. So my wife and I for years have talked about wanting to get out of New York State and we've lived around. I mean, we've lived in Cape Town. We've lived in, uh, uh, what was it? Ohio. Uh, I've moved around myself, lived in Jersey for a while as a young guy and so on. So we've bombed around a little bit and we ended up back in New York many, many, many years ago. Uh, due to various reasons, we went back to New York. This is before our daughter was born. We had our two sons and and um, settled down. But we, we've been wanting to get out of New York more so than ever the last, say, five plus, maybe even 10 years. And due to business obligations, due to economics, due to our family, due to just all kinds of reasons we didn't think it was the right time to go. We just didn't think we were free to go. Well, a few years ago, we were traveling and we said, you know, let's start visiting different cities. And one of the ones I've been researching and kind of got on my radar was Charleston. And around the same time, I think a couple of our kids discovered Charleston as well. It was kind of ironic or maybe coincidental, interesting how we coincidentally found Charleston. 
And I looked at Charleston many years ago uh, when, when we were still in our 30s before I'd bought the design agency that I ran for almost, almost 20 years, not quite. And we looked at Charleston as an option. But anyway, we came down to visit and we were like, just immediately fell in love. I think Lydia landed in the airport. You know, we flew in together uh, the first time we came down here. And she's like, this feels like home. Like, I don't know. It just feels like home. And it took me a handful of hours, a day or so to kind of crack the code on the town. But when I understood kind of the code underneath Charleston, like what is Charleston? What is it all about? What drives it? I was like, wow, this is a really phenomenal place. Now, it's not perfect. It's no Garden of Eden and uh, it's got its own issues and so on. But we fell in love and we come to visit a few times and decided, okay, if and when we'd love to come down here and make a life. And we kind of wanted to do it right away, but figured it wasn't the right time. And then we thought, well, maybe someday when we retire, et cetera. All right, fast forward. We go through, all of us in this world, has gone. we've gone through this whole pandemic thing. And, you know, various governments, depending where you're living, have handled it different ways. New York State, kind of infamous for the way that Governor Cuomo has run the state, the things that he's done, et cetera. But he's got a history. I mean, this isn't Cuomo's first rodeo. And this isn't his first uh, heavy-handed, authoritarian, dictator-style King Cuomo uh, operation. He's, he's, he's been that way before. I mean, he's let conservatives know, like, we don't want you here. He's come out and said it, you know, he's happy to suck you, drive your taxes, but he doesn't want you. He doesn't want your values and so on. And so as we kind of experienced how the state handled COVID, it just reinforced for me, like, we got to get out. And so earlier this year, just a confluence of things coming together, you know, two of our three kids plus our daughter-in-law, my one son is married, so he and his wife and our daughter all had different things going on. I was like, they were leaving the state. And then my son, Josh, who worked with me, uh, he'd been working with me for about a year. And we said before, like, hey, by the way, I don't know if you can hear that. We've got some sirens in the background. Yeah. Anyway. He had said, uh, we had talked about, hey, if you want to really grow, I mean, you can keep working with me in the consultancy, but you really need to get under a bigger roof, learn how bigger agencies do what they do and so on. So through a various, through, through a number of uh, conversations that he and I had, we agreed like, hey, if you can get a better job, go for it. And by the way, I think your mom and I are going to move soon. So you, you really should try to make a move if you're going to, because the timing might be great. So he was able to secure something in Miami and he's working at an agency in Miami right now. That's going really well for him. But one of the things for us is we had Gaston Manor. We had this five-acre 1820s farmhouse that was probably about 10 minutes from downtown Rochester. It was surrounded by suburban homes uh, with this wonderful kind of uh, <laughs> lovely uh, working farm, you know, gentleman's farm. I'll say my w- wife was running chickens. I mean, it doesn't make it a farm. There's a little barn on there. And it just was very idyllic in many ways for her. I, I didn't, I, I loved our house, but there, there were some things about that lifestyle that were difficult for me. That is whatever it is. But the market was so good. And this house, we put a ton of time and a ton of money into getting this house fixed up, but we had a long way to go. We probably had a good 100, 200,000 that we still needed to put into this house to make it like just so. And uh, in the old markets in Rochester, Rochester never really gets hot. It never gets cold. It's just steady eddy. You know, it just increase a little bit over time. You never make a lot of money. You never lose any money on property in Rochester. But if you're going to sell a house, you've got to have it mint. Everything's got to be perfect before you list it. And that's up for months and you hope that somebody buys it. But with the market the way it was, I mean, all over the country, the market's hot. But Rochester's market was hot. And I said, let's get somebody in here 
just to tell us, like, if we sold this house, if we just listed it as is, can we sell it? And if so, for what? And we had an agent come in and she took a look and she's like, don't do a thing. You have to just clean it up for photographs. Don't do a thing. Don't paint. Don't repair. Just list it and you're going to make a ton of money. Way more than we could have ever made in a normal market where we had made the house pristine. So we're going to make more money, according to this agent, just selling it as is in this market than we would if we wait three, five years from now, have everything mint and try to sell it. And so he said, well, let's, let's, let's do it. We listed the house and uh, lo and behold, she was right. We, we, made a, we made a good buck on it. So we decided then uh, if we do sell it, make a good buck, we're going to make the move. And here we are in Charleston. Uh, this has been over a series of months uh, with, uh, with, uh, <laughs> with a dose of COVID in between all that that kind of slowed things down. And, but here we are. So now we've moved down to Charleston. We had one house under contract. And I was getting into all the details you probably don't care about. And I'll be done with this in just a minute. Had a house under contract that fell apart, that deal. We killed it. It was just the, the sellers were being a bit unreasonable. And we said, oh, let's just walk away. And we were able to just recently, about two weeks ago, put another house on contract that's going really well, excited about this home. But we've got about a month and a half before we're going to be able to close and take possession of that house. The sellers need some time to work on the house that they're moving into. They have little children and there's some things like asbestos abatement or something like that. We're like, that's cool. We'll work with you on that. So all that to say, we have been living kind of like nomads. We're in this uh, furnished cottage. All of our stuff is, is in storage. I could tell you some stories about driving a 26 foot rented diesel truck full of our crap through the hills of West Virginia and some fun times. But here we are, and it's just amazing. Just very grateful to be here. So looking forward to getting things settled down, looking forward to consistent quality content for you, the people that I love, my audience, and uh, just excited to be behind the mic. Now, I did tease this and say, hey, I want to share a thought on a book I read. We're 10 minutes in. That's not very long. I'm just going to take a couple more minutes and share a thought. Over the last couple of months, two, three months, I read... In the First Circle, which is a novel written by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Solzhenitsyn is a Russian, he was a Russian dissident, an author, a great, great author. He's well known for writing the Gulag Archipelago, which is a series of books, uh, factual. I always thought that it was a novel, but I came to understand that the Gulag Archipelago is a series of books uh, detailing the gulag system in Soviet Russia. He wrote this novel called In the First Circle, which is a reference to Dante's Circles of Hell. And, <laughs> and it's really about these political prisoners. Most of them are political prisoners. I don't think there's anybody that's committed a crime like robbery or murder or rape. They're all political prisoners, people that, and it's, it's strange, like, a lot of these political prisoners didn't do anything against the, the, the regime. So, for instance, many of the prisoners depicted in this book, and it is kind of an autobiographical novel, Solzhenitsyn did spend time in, in the Soviet gulag system. And this prison that these guys are in, and I'll, I'll jump back to other thought in just a second, the prison they're in is this kind of high-end prison, meaning all these prisoners are either engineers, uh, optical, optical engineers, scientists, uh, researchers. These are, these are people who are educated and have 
either some type of technical skill or some type of useful skill that the Soviet state wants to put to use for its own means. So these Zeks, Z-E-K, a Zek is a slang for a prisoner in the Gulag system. These Zeks are all working to further Soviet dominance in some type of scientific or technological area. And uh, fascinating book, fascinating book. And, and, and Solzhenitsyn, what a phenomenal writer. I mean, the book is is deceptively simple. I mean, he's just really bringing you in and you're just experiencing the life of these prisoners. This isn't like this really complex, convoluted, sophisticated, but it, but it, but it has a simplicity and a beauty to it. Now, what is difficult about it is that it introduces so many characters and for a Westerner, uh, the naming conventions can be confusing. The way the, the patronomics, the last names, the, fa- the, the father's name, your name, nicknames, and all that kind of gets confusing. The, the, the addition that I had was great because it had a listing of every, every character that shows up in the book. And what I did is I went through as a new character would show up, I just go to that list and I'd scribble down what page number. And then I would go back from time to time and go, oh yeah, okay, I know who that is. Okay, now I remember that. After a while, you don't need to do that. But in the early going of the book, it's like, wow, just a lot of people with a lot of different names. What I was going to say about these Zeks, these political prisoners, is many of them were not hostile to uh, communism. A lot of them were either party members or they were Soviets. They they embraced socialism. They were ideologically uh, socialist, and they were embracing the Soviet party. Uh, and they had maybe fought in the war. Let's say they fought in World War II, and... Uh, and they were proud to fight for their country and they loved this, the party. And yet in the midst of fighting, they were captured. So if they were captured by the Germans and spent time in a German prisoner of war camp, well, when you got released after the war, the Soviets said, well, you, you must have betrayed the motherland. You must have shared secrets with them. You must have buckled under the pressure of, of interrogation and torture and betrayed your country. And so we're giving you 25 years uh, prison sentence or 10 years plus five years. So, so they do this plus system where you get 10 years of prison and then you get five years once you're out of prison where you're not allowed to participate in the party, et cetera. You're kind of like a persona non grata and you're having to live your life shunned, which is really hard to do in a society that is embracing uh, something like a totalitarian government. So fascinating book. And, you know, I, I want to say it's like 700 some odd pages big, you know, it's a doorstop, but easy to read relaxing, fascinating, and, and didn't have a huge, you know, climatic ending. There was no heroic ending. There was no so-and-so saves the day or some dramatic gesture, which was really, I think, a true statement about the reality of life under the Soviet regime. Uh, this was not a fiction. This was not some type of action book where in the end, you know, Schwarzenegger comes out guns a-blazing and uh, takes out the bad guys. One thing that was fascinating to me, so this book does depict a totalitarian state, and it does it, the author, you know, Solzhenitsyn lived inside of this. He knew it inside and out. He suffered at the hands of it, and he was a thinker and a writer. So this is a man of depth, a man of character, a man of, uh, uh, of sophistication and a certain kind of, I'll say worldliness. I don't mean an anti-Christian, but like he knew the world. He knew philosophy, etc., and he's he's depicting the state from from his deeper experience. This isn't just somebody writing 
a broadside against Soviet Union communism. This isn't somebody, just an ideologue, trying to attack a straw man opponent. He's writing from the inside, and he's depicting life. He's depicting how people make their way, how they make their decisions, how they behave, the ways they think, and how those things come together to create a state. And it's fascinating to me because all throughout the book, and he's very... What's really interesting about this book is when he released it, he had to butcher it. He even talks about it almost bitterly in, uh, in, the, in the preface about, uh, and I think he's talked about this in other places, and he's since passed away, but in other places where he had to, where he had to butcher his own child just to get it published because there were parts that he wrote that could never be published in the Soviet Union. He, want, he published this while he was in the Soviet Union, so he harshly, harshly edited it to make sure that it could get through the censors and not land him in prison. And then the edition that I read uh, is, the, is his restored edition where he then, once he got out, he was, you know, he was ejected from the, uh, exiled from the Soviet Union from Russia, which broke his heart. And he came to America and lived out his years here. Um, but he, he loved his home. He wasn't in love with America. He loved his home. Uh, he he restored it. He he added back in what he had to butcher out, and um, so that was the full edition. But in depicting all this, he's depicting Stalin. He's depicting um, you know various hierarchies, departments. He's depicting average everyday people that are sucked up into the system, not just prisoners. And what's interesting, what's fascinating, and this just this kind of one thing I want to draw out before we wrap up today is that you've got this totalitarian state that is so ideological, it's so committed to its idea of communism and communism taking over the world. And people are like going to classes once a week, like everybody, doesn't matter where you are in society, you're going to classes, you're being taught ideology, they're like like party classes and you're having to read the party book that Stalin wrote and then you're having to then take tests every week to make sure that you know the material. I mean, this is not just like, you, you know, you're a kid in college. This is some 48-year-old having to spend three hours a week in this uh, essentially a, a indoctrination, indoctrination class. And so you're having to be very careful what you say, who you associate with, because there, there's such a deeply ingrained embracement, if that's even a thing, of Soviet and communist and Marxist ideology to such a degree that they're looking for every single way that they can put life into or, or look at it through that lens. It, it, it's, they're looking for this kind of all-embracing ideology that explains everything, that, that, that makes sense of the world and forecasts, predicts what's going to happen and tells them why their way of living and their political system and all of the things that they're suffering for the greater good down the road is, is, is going to prevail over other systems like, like free market capitalist systems, etc. So what's fascinating about this is you see on one hand when you're so ideologically oriented, and I think there's some lessons for us in today's society, when you're so ideologically oriented, you, you, you start with an ideology and you say this ideology must be true. And so now we have to bring life into line with our ideology, not our idea. Ideas are fine. Ideologies are dangerous. And so there's this idea that we've got to bring our ideology to bear on every aspect of life. But the problem is the ideology is clearly flawed. 
And the ideology does not give place for things like human nature and so on. So what you get is all this corruption. You get this wickedness, this meanness, evil. People are killed. Bodies are broken. Families are destroyed. Marriages are ruined. Children just cast out. Whole society just just decimated. And, and that's the wrong word. Decimated. You know, we use the word decimated, and I'm guilty of this. Oh, decimated. We use it to mean leveled. That's not what decimated means. So shame on me. Uh, decimated, the root word is deci or ten. What the Romans would do is they would go into a city and decimate it, meaning they'd line up everybody, all the men, and they'd kill one out of ten. That's decimating a city. And what you end up doing is you demoralize and you just heartbreak. It's just like it's random. It's just every 10th person, boom, 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 every 10th cattle. And, you know, you could just decimate in that way. And that was a way to teach people a lesson. It, it would be better to level the whole city. It's, it's more terrifying to know that your city's going to be decimated. The Romans might come in and decimate you because you have to live uh, with the horror of what you observed if you're a survivor. And, the, and obviously, one out of every 10, everybody's going to lose someone. So the whole city, it's not like, well, yeah, in that neighborhood, they wiped those guys up, but I'm okay. I don't really know anybody over there. You know, people are like, yeah, I don't really know anybody that died of COVID. Well, that's because it hasn't really killed as many people as, <laughs> as we thought it was going to. But if COVID decimated us, if one out of 10 people died from COVID, which is absolutely not even the, the, the metric, the statistic, then, then we would all just be devastated because all of us would have lost somebody and we'd feel that uh, quite deeply. So... They have destroyed the society because the ideology is not true. And so what you get is people doing wicked things to each other and so on. You get corruption. And, and, but they keep explaining it, saying, you know, you're going to have some of these things because we're on the way to greater. And so you're going to have some evil. You're going to have some bad. But it's going to get wiped. You know, it's going to get cleared up. It's going to get better. You'll see. Yes, this is unjust. Yes, this is immoral. Yes, this is uh, corrupt. But it's okay. We're, we're getting, you have to go through this to get to the better. And so ultimately what you have is a society based on lies. You have a society based on lies. And, and I'm going to juxtapose that against something very interesting in a moment here. But if you think about a totalitarian society, the only way that it works is if you force everyone to play along. You know, in, in, in a freewheeling, free, <laughs> let's call it a democracy here in America, you know, you used to be able to say whatever you want. And so like 20 people get together and if, if 18 of them are like, hey, the sky is blue. And two of them are like, uh, no, it's not. It's raining. You know, then, then the, the 18 can go, well, you're wrecking our party because you're saying it's raining. It might really be raining, but if the 18 are saying the sky's blue because they just don't want to admit that it's raining. And then the two people are saying, you guys are idiots. It's raining. We're all soaking wet. What is wrong with you? I'm not sticking around. We're leaving. You know, then the 18 point at the two and go, you're ruining the party. So in a free society, people, they say what they want. And actually when it's raining, the majority of people go, oh, it's raining. They don't feel compelled to say that the sky is blue. But in a society like Soviet, the Soviet Union of uh, Solzhenitsyn's time, you were compelled to say that it was sunny because that was what aligned with the ide ideology and you didn't want to get in trouble for saying otherwise. And so you have a society that's based on lies. People lie to one another to get by. People lie to the government to not get in trouble. And then you have this deeper ideology that really doesn't work. The economy wasn't working. Farming was not working. The leadership style was not working. Uh, everything was just not working. And yet you had to lie to each other saying, this is the best. 
It's the best. It's, this is better than it could ever. This is like the the pinnacle of human experience. We are the pinnacle. That's really, really what they were telling each other. The art wasn't good, uh, all of it. So that's a totalitarian society. The only way for the lie to work is when you force everybody to participate in the lie. And so when someone says, I'm not going to participate in the lie, well, you've got to break that person. You have to silence them because otherwise you've got the little boy who's saying the emperor has no clothes. And suddenly when everyone's clapping, going, the emperor is beautiful. I've never seen anything like this before. <laughs> and the little boy goes, he's naked. <laughs> it's like you kind of break the spell. So here's what I want to juxtapose this against, what's really fascinating and what kind of came out of the book for me, and I don't know if this is what Solzhenitsyn was aiming for, was that the Soviets and the Marxists and the people of this society were convinced that their way was the most scientific way, that communism, that Soviet uh, Soviet, the Soviet application of communism, that socialism, that all these things... Uh, Stalinism, you know, Leninism and all this, that it was the scientific, it was the most scientifically sound, most scientifically based way to run a society. And which is just stunning to me when you have a bunch of ideologues and thugs and dictators and totalitarians destroying people's lives, not letting them live and flourish and, and seek happiness and to love one another and to build families and communities and worship their God. When you don't allow people to be people, to be human beings, and you make this kind of what, what is really a mechanistic society, you've stripped the humanity out of your society and you've imbued it with lies. And then you have the gall, you have the ignorance, you have the, you have the, the blindness to say that we're the most scientifically based society. They were, and that's why they were so sure that they were going to prevail because they were sure scientifically because Marx has shown in the Hegelian dialectic and they go through all this brainwashing to embrace this lie that it was superior, that it was scientific when ultimately it was just a house of cards. They were looking for these scientific theories, these unifying theories to explain all of economy, all of social intercourse all of, you know, take your pick. They're trying to unify everything under some type of unified scientific theory. And they were sure that all the parts of their society and the centrally controlled economy and, and the, you know, the, the totalitarian, you know, imposition of, of ideologies and a materialist uh, a view of world, et cetera, that this was a scientific way. And science is based on what? Empirical data, research, you know, all these things like we, it's been researched, it's been proven. And they, and they would just, but it was just ideology. And so it was just fascinating to me to see, and this isn't a fiction. The book is an autobiographical fiction. It's a work of fiction. It's literature, but it's based on Solzhenitsyn's real experiences and insights and thoughts about the society that he was a part of. And I think that's instructive for us. I, I really, it made me think about our current situation where we are skewing towards socialism. We're, we're quite ideological and our Black Lives Matter and, you know, men are all bad and women are all fantastic. And if you've got light skin, well, you're an oppressor. If you've got dark skin, you know, you're this really special, beautiful thing. Uh, and your ways are better than my ways. And, you know, the list goes on. And yet at the same time, this is all ideology. 
And yet we're, we're sure, we're sure that we're the most scientific, the most fact-based, truth-based society ever to grace the face of the earth. I mean, if you don't agree with what the experts say, be they psycholog- psychologists, be they, uh, you know, family, you know, this is how you raise a family. We don't need um, husbands and wives anymore. We can have two moms and two dads or whatever, it, you know, gender experts that tell you that, yeah, it doesn't matter. You can choose whatever gender you want to be. You know, you and I can look with our eyes, empirical data. We can go that 300 pound guy in a dress. And when he says he wants to enter women's wrestling, he's going to, he's going to annihilate, not decimate. He's going to annihilate every female competitor because I can empirically see more muscle mass, you know, just, just big, you know, fill in all the blanks. And yet they're telling us, the ideologues are telling us that scientifically we're idiots. How dare you say this? How dare you say that that's not a woman? It's science, folks, <laughs> mixed with ideology. So there you have it. I mean, I just, I would really encourage, if you're looking for, it's not, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a, the uh, hot summer read. I mean, read it this summer. It's fantastic, but it's it's food for the soul. And Solzhenitsyn really shares something special. And even though it was written decades and decades ago, it's set in the 1940s and 50s uh, around there. It's a great story, too. There's a fantastic story in there, fantastic characters and character development. But wow, is it food for the soul? And wow, is it appropriate and applicable to the world that we in America find ourselves today. Guys, I hope that you are doing well. I'm really glad to have you back. I'm sure having not put a podcast out for a while, you know, maybe I've lost a handful of folks, <laughs> but but I, I hope that you found me. I hope you're here. I love you guys. I'm very grateful for you. And I'm looking forward to putting out more and more content. So guys, don't forget, I love you. And I will catch you in the next episode. Thank you.